and welcome to Teen People. My name is Anna Soper, and I'm a writer, artist, and librarian in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. The premise of this podcast is pretty simple. I interview people who were in Teen People magazine as young adults. Some of these kids, now in their 30s and 40s, were featured in Teen People as young models, interns, and journalists. Others had overcome adversity and shared moving stories with Teen People's readers. And some, like my guest in this episode, appeared on Teen People's annual list of teens who will change the world. Kelly McWilliams was a teenager when she published her first novel called Doormat. The book tells the story of a teen whose best friend's unexpected pregnancy affects their relationship. Kelly's mom is the author Jewel Parker Rhodes, who has received the Coretta Scott King Author Honor Award and the American Book Award for her work for children and adults. Both mom and daughter published books last year, and both authors created works that mirrored current events, writing about a viral pandemic and systemic racism, respectively. Kelly's book, Agnes at the End of the World, received starred reviews in School Library Journal, Kirkus Reviews, and Publishers Weekly. It was also featured, funnily enough, in People Magazine's 20 Best Books to Read This Summer, in the summer of 2020. Trapped in a cult, Agnes realizes she must escape to the outside, but as luck would have it, a viral pandemic is burning through the population at a terrifying rate. As Agnes ventures forth, a mysterious connection grows between her and the virus. Will Agnes be able to choose between saving her family and saving the world? From 20 teens who will change the world to 20 best books to read this summer, this is the story of Kelly McWilliams. Kelly spoke with me from her home in Colorado, where she told me about an entirely coincidental connection between her and my very first guest on this podcast, Karen Levis. Karen, who once interned at Teen People, teaches in the Creative Writing MFA program at the New School in New York. Guess who took one of her courses? That's right, it's my guest, Kelly McWilliams. It's good to finally meet you. I feel like we've been emailing for a while. <laughs> that is true. How are you today? Uh, doing just fine. Good. Yeah. I would love to hear a little bit more about the project. You know, you said that you were a collector of teen peoples. Yeah. I've always loved magazines. So when I was a teenager, I had a subscription to teen people and I kept the magazines. And when I bought my house three years ago, I was unpacking boxes and I found all these teen peoples. I've got a dozen issues left from, from that time. I was flipping through the magazine and one of the things that teen people did differently was they published people's full names mm -hmm. and ages and locations. So that makes people really Googleable. But at the time, of course, they would never have imagined that you could look people up like this. And as I was flipping through my teen peoples, I kept thinking like, what are all these teenagers up to now? Because I realized they were in their 30s and 40s. And I thought, okay, if, if I'm buying a house, what are these kids up to? You know, where have they progressed in their lives? I originally thought about it as a film, but I'm not a filmmaker. I, mm. I thought a documentary would be cool. I kind of shelved it for a couple of years. And then as we were sort of inching towards the first lockdown last year, I started seeing these articles online about like the best podcast to get you through quarantine. And I realized, oh, I could just turn this into a podcast. And that's, that's sort of how it began. So Karen was actually the first person that I emailed and <laughs> she was, she was so great. And because she had just published uh, another book, she was excited to talk and share that with me. And so I've just been sort of gradually emailing people and reaching out to them and uh, uh, hearing people's stories. That's amazing. And I, you know, I took a, I think I told you, I took a class with Karen yeah. um, at New School on children's writing. And um, I had no idea she had also done the teen people thing. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. I mean, that not that funny that you both were in that orbit and yes. had no idea? <laughs> great she was she's like still one of the you know sweetest people in the world I should reach back out and try to connect with her but um you know I, I was interested in trying to write for younger ages and she knew so much about that and she's she's a great teacher yeah. mm, I'm sure she is I would love to take a class with her actually um and I I really love children's literature before I became a librarian I was a library assistant and I worked in the children's department at my local public library 
and was reconnecting with books from my childhood that I'd sort of forgotten all about and rereading them with fresh eyes. And I was discovering new books that weren't published yet when I was a child. So I was, you know, reading them for the first time. So uh, I really, uh, I'm sort of a firm believer in adults reading children's literature, because I think it's, it's, it's good for you, but it's also, it's also just a special way to reconnect with your young self. I totally agree. Yeah, it's a special literature for sure. Mm -hmm. And I realized when I was Googling you, your mom's name was super familiar. And I realized that I've read one of her books. I read Ninth Ward. Oh, yeah. Ninth Ward was her very first children's book. And she wrote it after Hurricane Katrina. And she was, I still remember when she was working on it, she was so nervous. She didn't know if she could write for children. <laughs> and then she, it was, you know, such a wonderful book. And I, I think I worked on her blog for a little bit, which we called Lanisha Says, because the main character was Lanisha. And, um, you know, now, and now she only writes children's books and she loves it. And most recently she wrote... This is her most recent, came out in March. It's called Black Brother, Black Brother. And it's also wonderful. So she's doing, she's had a good time in the middle grade space. Mm, I've noticed that the two of you have been interviewed together a lot. Oh yeah. So this um, past summer, so, well, so her book came out in March, right? As everything was crazy and she lived in Seattle. So she actually makes a fair amount of her income doing school visits and going on these tours. And she had to shut all of that down. And I had my book coming out June 9th. So we decided, well, what if we just combined and tried to do like a virtual tour sort of blitz? <laughs> and um, we did that and it was wild and crazy, but um, it was also really special because, you know, I haven't been able to see her um, since I mean, it's been like a year and a half now. So it was kind of like a way for us to get to spend time together too. Mm, that's <laughs> lovely. And, and just, you know, how lucky and fortuitous that that could happen. I know it was, it was, it was pretty neat. Despite yeah. everything. That's yeah. awesome. Awesome. Well, say hi to her for me. And I enjoyed her book. <laughs> I will mention that to her. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually, um, when I went to library school, I had a professor who's Canadian, but he lived in New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina happened. And he spoke about that time with what sounded like PTSD. Yeah. And I actually recommended that book to him. Wow. Yeah. I love that. That's amazing. I don't know if he ended up reading it, but um, it's it just seemed like, again, children's literature can move you and heal you even as an adult. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. Yeah. yeah. So I have started reading Agnes at the end of the world. I just got it oh, from the library. Oh, oh thank you. Yeah. So far, I'm finding it a real page turner and I'm looking forward to finishing it and seeing what happens. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, I, I, I always, I mean, I'm sure, you know, from the back, I always give a trigger warning. There is a pandemic in it. <laughs> I, know. I think you found that out by now, but <laughs> it would be interesting to know if you could have a parallel universe, how your book would have launched if this had never happened. It's such, I mean, I wonder about that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, at the, I started writing it um, four years ago now. So three years before it came out and I was inspired by being pregnant in Hawaii during the Zika epidemic. And I don't know if you remember, but the Zika virus in tropical locations, it was just a really devastating virus for pregnant women in particular. And luckily, Hawaii never saw like an outbreak of it. But I heard on NPR um, and on, on the radio would say pregnant women, you know, stay away from standing bodies of water. And every time I went outside, I would like cover myself in DEET. I'm sure my daughter can still remember the smell of DEET. <laughs> and um, it just struck me sort of how quickly the world can really turn upside down because of a public health issue. And I had never really thought about that before. And so I, I just, I do tend to write about things that scare me, like that it's sort of a way of working through that. And I've always done that, um, almost like a way of processing sort of, you know, trauma and processing fears. People say writing is like dreaming awake. And for me, it tends to actually be like working through nightmares. Um, so I found it very cathartic at the time to work through my fear of a global pandemic, not knowing <laughs> that, you know, by, by the, the month that it came out on June 9th, we would be in the grips of this really devastating, uh, really close to home pandemic. 
and the experience um, of marketing it has has been has been interesting because up until March or April, the talking points that I was preparing to discuss the book were all about the cult because it's a cult pandemic mashup. And I thought, well, you know, naturally people will be more interested in the cult. That will seem more timely and more relevant, right? <laughs> and then, you know, that pan pandemic comes around the corner and um, it was just a wild experience. Right. I remember in the very early days of lockdown, because I'm a librarian, I would talk with colleagues. I would say, think about the literature that's going to come out of this, like the first post-pandemic novel or the nonfiction. And now I almost feel like I don't want to see those books. But I do think that the book industry, I do think that there's going to be uh, a way of grappling with, with what's happened in the future. We are going to see a wave of that kind of literature. So it's sort of fascinating to think that you sort of accidentally become one of the first. Yeah. I mean, I really think, you know, that that literature, when we as a culture sort of process what happens, I think who it will be really useful for is like, the children who are growing up now, who weren't sort of in the thick of it, but will always have, you know, moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas telling stories about this time. I think those will be the people who it really kind of sinks home for. And, and mm -hmm. I do think that there will be some really great masterpieces that come out of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As a librarian, it's exciting to think about uh, what's going to come. As a reader, though, I think I, I might choose to read other things before I get into that literature. But you're right. I okay. think for the younger generation, that might be their their entry point or uh, something that helps them answer questions because they'll have grown up in this time and little things will stick in their mind and then maybe years years later they'll say oh that's how that went right yeah i think it'll be similar to sort of the literature of the great depression that you know mm -hmm. the people lived through the great depression and they had these stories and grandmas and grandpas were you know still stocking their pantries with 20 years worth of corn you know yes. <laughs> The grandkids like trying to understand that in their experiences and their lives and learn from it, you know, read these wonderful books. Mm -hmm. um, it really is a reminder of how short life is and, you know, not to not to put off the things that you you think you'd like to do because nothing's guaranteed. You know, it's so funny because um, my life in some ways has been really punctuated by um, viruses. Uh, when I decided to get pregnant in Hawaii, I was sort of, I was younger, I was 29 and one of the first of my friends circled to be starting a family. And the reason I decided to do it was because we had spent some time on the big island and I had been infected with um, what we think might be dengue fever, but had never been confirmed as such. But in any case, I got bit by a mosquito and I got really, really sick. And that's, it hit home to me, life is short. And if you want to have a kid, you should maybe get, you know, do it now. Like why put it off? And then, you know, during my pregnancy, there was this Zika epidemic. And then as the book came out, there was COVID. So yeah. Wow. What next? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've taken a look at some of the, the blogs you've written and some of your interviews as well. And some questions and thoughts have, have come up for me as I've done that. And, and also as I've started to read the book. One thing I thought was interesting, you said in, in a blog, I haven't watched television in over a year because I'd rather be reading. So I was curious, what are you reading now? Well, right now, mostly I'm doing research for my next book. I have a book coming out in winter 2022 called Mirror Girls, and it's the story of two sisters, twin girls, um, one light presenting like myself and the other obviously black who are separated um, across the color line during Jim Crow. They live in Georgia and they are split up because their coloring is so different and their parents were murdered for being a mixed couple. So I most recently, and they, and the story is, you know, they reunite to sort of unravel this great mystery in Georgia. And it mostly takes place in about 1953. So the last book I read was pretty grim. It was a history of the last mass, mass lynching, the um, Morse Ford lynching in, in Georgia. And um, then I started also a book this morning about the civil rights struggle in New York. So one of the sisters comes down from New York. Um, and that's been really fascinating to be reading about freedom writers. And, but I would say it's not totally true that I never watch TV. I mean, it's rare that I watch TV, but I watch movies um, mm -hmm. and I'll watch things that stand out to me as something that can help me as an artist. Like, so when Lovecraft Country came out, um, before I was able to get the book from my library, I took a look at the first episode of that. 
but for me, sort of like the consumption of media, it's, I guess it's kind of always about my, my work in a way. So I tend not to want to watch things or engage with things that I don't feel are contributing to the work that I'm doing. Yeah. And have you started writing this book or are you still in the researching phase? The book actually just went to copy edits on Friday. I don't actually want to research too, too much when I get started. I read a lot of fiction that'll be sort of set in the same place or with some of the same ideas um, or just something that resonates with me. The story has a lot of ghosts in it. So I read a lot of really fun young adult ghost stories. I don't really want to know too many facts because sometimes they get in the way. So I like to, to write the book and then do my research sort of as the book comes back from copy edit. So in about two weeks, the copy editor will get back to me with sort of all my mistakes that I've made. And then I'll start layering in a few other things for historical context, a few other facts, like make sure I get all the trees right that grow there. But yeah, it's, it's my process is just a little wacky. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said finishing a book is really like running a marathon. I'm still stunned I pulled it off and you're a better person on the other side. Yes. And it's, you know, and I actually, I always forget how hard it is. So this time for Mirror Girls, I had completely, thank you for reminding me and reading me that I should get that tattooed somewhere because <laughs> <laughs> I, I forgot how hard Agnes was. Writing Agnes was one of the most difficult and also most rewarding experiences of my life. Um, it is really draining. Um, the, the book that I was in Teen People for, the doormat, um, and I have the little sticker. It says one of the 20 one of Teen People's 20 teens will change the world on there. Um, but this is the only easy book I ever wrote. It just came out one summer, sort of all in a rush. It was like my magic book. But I guess I only get one of those because every <laughs> book since then has been, you know, like, whoops, and there it goes, like breaking rocks with other rocks. You know? <laughs> and of course, there's some wonderful, you know, joy mixed in there too, that I guess runner's high if you want to go with the marathon. <laughs> but um, it's grueling. It's grueling work. <laughs> mm, sounds like it. Could you tell me just briefly about Doormat? Sure. Um, Doormat is the story of, uh, I want to say 15 year old girl, 14 year old girl. <laughs> See, that's the thing. When you write these stories, like you start to forget them. I'm already sort of kind of forgetting Agnes and I'm going to be doing more tour for it. And when the paperback comes out and I'm going to be like, what story was that again? <laughs> but 14 year old girl named Jamie, whose um, best friend becomes pregnant. It's about a girl who's sort of working with her friend to try and solve this terrible problem that they have to face while they're still young and in school. And it's her own coming of age, also stepping out of her friend's shadow and becoming her own person. So mm -hmm. it is a contemporary story. There's a teen pregnancy in it, which is sort of the tr more of a trigger, I think, maybe in the 90s than it, than it is now. <laughs> but it used to be something that I would want, you know, parents would like raise their eyebrows about. But it's a sweet story with a sort of fun, sarcastic narrator. And you can still find it out there in the world. Yeah. It is interesting to think about that trajectory because I was thinking about that too. Like now the trend is sort of dystopian. And then at the time it was all like teen pregnancy drama. Right. Like the problem novel. Yes. They called it <laughs> exactly the problem novel. And you really don't see as many of those anymore. No, it's true. <laughs> We've like shifted our attention as consumers and readers um, and, and publishing knows this, but we've also shifted our attention in terms of the things that we're scared of for our I children. True. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, you know, I have theories about this. It ties into like climate change and just we're all thinking more globally than we used to. You said it, you said it really well that the things that scare us are different. Tell me a bit about the teen people experience. You know, I only found out about it sort of after the fact through my agent. Um, and my agent is the same agent that I had then. Cool. Um, and he was, he just told me about it. He was very excited. He said, you know, you get to take a trip to New York. And I did. And he sort of like, you know, he met me outside of the, the building where they were going to have the sort of event and the gala. And then later on, we went to Los Angeles to take photographs. Um, it, it's so funny. I haven't thought about that time in my life in so, so long, but it was, um, it was really exciting. I got to meet the editor of the magazine. She gave a little talk to us. I got to hear a little bit about, you know, each winner at this gala event. And then, um, when they did the photographing in Los Angeles, I got to meet two other people who were, who were there with me and like, get my hair professionally done for like the first and only time. <laughs> and, um, but no, it was, it was a wild experience. And how did you feel meeting the other, uh, the other teens who will change the world? 
Oh, they were amazing. It was amazing. And and there's one that I still think of regularly and tell people about, and it's kind of for kind of a silly reason. There was a young man who tested the water on airplanes, um, like the water that they give you, and found that it was basically sort of sewage or sewer water was contaminated um, and that they'd been sort of refilling their water bottles with um, the tap water on the plane, which is not filtered and not clean. It's amazing that he did that as a science project, that he sort of like had the initiative to do that. And I remember him telling me about it. And I, to this day, I tell people don't drink the water on a plane. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a great story. I've read about him. I'd love to have him on the, uh, on the podcast. Um, I would be so curious what he's doing now. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try and reach out to him and we'll see if we can get an episode with him. Uh, So teen people described you as a teen who will change the world. How are you going to be changing the world? Oh yeah. I mean, that is, you know, TBD. (laughs) That's, um, you know, after the teen. So the teen people thing is really interesting because a lot of the kids are essentially prodigies, which is a weird thing to be. And there's some fallout from doing things, big things sort of early in your life. Um, When I wrote Doormat, you know, it was published by Random House. It was a big deal, a serious deal. I didn't really understand that at the time. And I remember feeling mostly terrified that my friends would read it. And of course, now I have the wisdom to know your friends rarely read your books. So, <laughs> you know, like it's okay, you know, but, um, and you know, it was, it was a book about high school and it was based on some people that I know. And, and I also lacked the wisdom to know that people never recognize themselves when you put them in books. But I was, I was just terrified. I was a teenager and I was, I, I had so much anxiety. Um, I was on CNN and I had, I threw up before. <laughs> you know? And it was, it was you know, so it was an exciting and a thrilling thing. And it opened so many doors to me and gave me so many experiences that I'm very grateful for. But being a prodigy is not something that I would sort of recommend, like being really good at something too early because you struggle later. Like it, it has, it, I think it has a little bit of a backlash later. I know this too from very talented musicians um, and actors who began at a young age. I actually, after I wrote this book, I went to a boarding school called the Walnut Hill School for the Arts. And I used some of the, the money that I got from this book to pay the tuition to this sort of fancy private school because I was then dead set on being a writer because I'd already had some initial success there. And that's one of those things about being a prodigy is you kind of get locked in. You don't really get a chance to explore. And so I met these young, talented ballet dancers. They had a dance program, a theater program, a music program. And the musicians in particular were truly prodigies, some of them. Just, you know, they would practice eight hours a day. They went on to perform at Carnegie Hall when they were very, very young. A lot of us had a really difficult period in our 20s, you know, as a result. And when we were sort of searching and confused, I went to the new school for a little while thinking I would get an MFA in writing for children, but I didn't complete it. It didn't feel like a great fit for me. And I and I just, I was overwhelmed by, by New York City and by this idea that I had to succeed so fast. You know, your sense of time is all sort of out of whack too when you have a big success as a teenager. You kind of expect yourself to keep having them, you know, easily every couple of years. And so after that, you know, in in my 20s, I left the school and I said, I really need to kind of like find out who I am. Um, I met my husband. We moved to Hawaii, (laughs) which is a good good place to, you know, sort of discover things. He was going to school for computer programming there. And um, I was just sort of trying to figure out what I wanted to be. I started writing for some, you know, online outlets because writing was still something that I loved. I started toying with some ideas, not assuming that they were going to be sort of published and just got back to kind of the joy of writing. So when Agnes came out this summer, we really treated it as my debut novel, even though it is not the first novel that I've ever wrote, because I do think of it as sort of a debut for a new period in my life that has really just begun. And so then to your question, you know, how how would I change the world? I tend to think writers um, don't change the world so much as reflect the world. So changing it, that's not That's not ever one of my goals as an artist, but I hope that I can change people's lives by giving them a different way of seeing themselves. Young adult literature in particular is very much about identity. And I know that my life was certainly changed by sort of 
see, looking into these mirrors of literature um, and you know, seeing what was possible. So changing the world, not on my to-do list, but <laughs> <laughs> trying to paint you know, an accurate picture of the world and an uplifting and empowering picture for teenagers very much is. What advice would you give your teenage self today? Oh gosh, I would tell her to just relax and to be patient. You know, I, I was so impatient. I, I really felt like, I don't know, I, I just, you know, I was in college and I was still trying to write books. <laughs> like on the side, I was like writing my papers and then trying to write fiction. I would send them over to my agent and, but I was, I was working very much out of fear and I wasn't being patient with my own growth and I wasn't waiting until I had something to say. So my advice for all teenage writers is, you know, practice because writing is so much fun. It's a pure joy. Write anything you want, write all day, but don't expect that you have something to say right now because that can be very rare. When I wrote Doormat, I did have something to say. There was really something I wanted to say about female friendship and I was really working through some things, but it was kind of like a fluke that that was the case. Um, and then in my twenties, I had nothing to say. I didn't, you know, I still enjoyed writing, but I didn't have anything really to offer. And I think it wasn't until, you know, I was pregnant with my daughter that suddenly it was like this urge to, to speak out in the world was, was stronger and more real. And so all, and I, and I realized just how useless it was to be agonizing for all of those years about, you know, writing a book that was fit for the world. Cause you just, sometimes you just gotta wait until you're ready, until you have something new. And for some people, you know, they're in their sixties when that happens, you know, we're a culture that prizes youth, um, but there's really so much to be said for wisdom, especially when it comes to art. And that's not to say for young teenagers, young writers that you shouldn't be writing, you absolutely should, but don't pressurize it. Don't um, put the weight of the world on your shoulders. Yeah, there's enough weight as it is when you're young. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I like that. That really dovetails with something that's, um, that you've said in a, a Q&A. Know that your best work is waiting for you to catch up to it. Wow. I don't remember saying that. Thank you. That's so cool. Um, yes, it is. And, and, and that's also, I think as an artist, like a way to just live hopefully, um, that your best work can always be ahead of you. But yeah, there are also a lot of things that you have to learn in terms of mirror girls. Um, as, as you may notice, Agnes is, she's white. <laughs> she comes from a cult where people are very white. And I think I was writing about issues of identity, sort of toying with issues of identity, writing about the cult and the escape from the cult and sort of that idea of self-determination, who are you gonna be? But I was not ready to write about my own biracial identity. I wasn't able to sort of like turn the camera lens, lens and look at it directly. So I actually had to grow as a person before I could write Mirror Girls, which is the book coming out next winter. And one of the ways that I grew as a person was um, writing this book. I, I, I met a lot of other authors. I got to do this uh, tour with my mother who had written about having a light-skinned child and a dark-skinned child in Black Brother, Black Brother. And I just started to learn also during the summer of racial reckoning, sort of how to, how to think of myself as a Black woman and how to manage the fact that I present as white to many people. And, you know, I'm, I'm 33. That's, that's a long time to be sorting out your identity issues, <laughs> but there, we are all so many facets of so many different things that, it, you know, give yourself that time. And so I really felt like writing Agnes and sort of living, promoting Agnes got me ready to write the next book. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because we were talking before about how the timing of Agnes at the end of the world coming out as we were uh, starting to, to descend into a global pandemic. But the other thing that happened last year was the Black Lives Matter movement revived uh, around the US and Canada too. Yeah, um, no, it was, it was a wild and heartbreaking summer. And I knew that I had to sort of write about the, the past and, and um, racial history and look at things sort of head on. In my bio for Agnes, it says, I think that I'm a mixed race writer and I just no longer identify as mixed race. Like I identify as a black woman. One of the things that I tried to do this summer was practice kind of anti-passing. You know, if I heard someone making a comment in the grocery store, um, I would turn around and say like, I'm black, you know, like you can't say these things around me. You know, I, I don't let things slide as much anymore. Um, we've all been very galvanized and in personal and in bigger ways. 
and I am not an activist, but I am an artist. And so I do try to respond to things through art. But yes, it's been quite a year. It sounds as if your creative practice uh, intersects with current events. I think it, I think it does. I, I think that um, writers and, and artists in general can be a little bit like a sponge and you sort of soak up everything around you. And that's actually even more reason to wait because the more you soak up, the more you have to draw from. And you don't always know what's gonna matter when it comes time to write. Like you can take um, an adventurous trip through Europe thinking, oh, I'll find something wonderful to write about, but you really might not. You know, it, it might be, you know, the, the newspaper article you read one day at breakfast about some small local thing that sticks with you, or it might be just sort of <laughs> living through various viruses. Um, you know, you, you really, it's, it's, it's impossible to say your unconscious mind is doing a lot of work, which is a, a way in, like in which you're writing even when you don't know it. So, oh, yeah. Oh, that's a fantastic line. Yeah, my, my mother really truly lives by that. She she writes rarely. I tend to write every day, whereas she'll sort of maybe touch in for 15 minutes one day and then go off and live her life and 15 minutes another day. And this is a woman who's now publishing her 17th book. Okay. Mm. So it's like, she still gets it done, <laughs> but, but she has this really relaxed attitude. And she says it's because she's kind of getting it right the first time. Cause when she steps away from the project, her mind is still working on it. And she's still absorbing things and responding to them and thinking about plot problems. And yeah. I had some thoughts as I, as I've started to read your book. Um, I read a book recently called ghost wall, which is a very short novel. It's set in England and it's about a young woman whose father is a kind of a survivalist to back to the land type. And he's fixated on iron age Britain. Uh, and particularly fixated on the ritual sacrifice of young women. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yes. <laughs> um, and in fact, the book opens with a very brief chapter, vividly written, of a young woman's POV as she's about to be ritually sacrificed in ancient Britain. Mm. Then it cuts into the present day and the story unfolds from there. The other thing that I was thinking about was the Salem witch trials. Mm. For me, I actually, although I'm British Canadian, I have American ancestry through my father's mom, whose mother was American. We have an ancestor who was tried as a witch and was killed during the Salem witch trials. Reading your book is making me think about what we've been talking about lately, the press intrusion of famous young women. And how that's threatened their safety, their livelihood, their ability to move freely in society. That is so fascinating. I love that the the sort of historicity of that goes back so far for you, and that it's resonating on those those levels. One of the things about about my my current writing is that I'm always very interested in sort of multi generation stories, and so I I love that. I just think that that's such an amazing connection. But yes, like one of the things that this book write you know I, I write about the oppression of women <laughs> because it makes me so angry, you know. And um, actually, you know, this daughter of mine, I, I keep talking about her, but she, you know, really is the reason that the book exists. Um, she was actually born on election night in 2016. I didn't know who was president because I was in labor for 36 hours. <laughs> and I woke up, you know, after and I, I, I said to my mom, you know, so did we get my daughter a female president for her birthday? And her face just fell. I mean, and I was just like, you know, and, and I couldn't believe it. I had been in this sort of fugue state. And um, I think some of some of Agnes's sort of fiery feminism comes from my anger over that and, and my fear that we would just con continue to see the oppression of women getting worse. And one of the things about this pandemic is I think the oppression of women is getting worse. Like, you know, the sort of the economic instability that a lot of people are in, you know, women leaving the workforce. And in Agnes, you know, there's a man, a, a prophet who uses the pandemic against his people. So he uses it to say, you know, now you've really got to listen to me because the apocalypse is coming. And if you mess up, you know, you're, you're not going to the right place. It hasn't worked out quite exactly that way. It's really like economic influences that are driving women away. But 
um, I do have concerns about how these pressures sort of affect us, especially, you know, women with children and women who are caretakers. There's a recurring question in Agnes at the end of the world, which is Agnes, are you in rebellion? So do you think of yourself as in rebellion? Um, I do try to be in rebellion <laughs> yeah, in general. Yes, I do. I, um, and there's so much to rebel against. It can get exhausting. So, you know, sometimes you just gotta go with the flow, but, uh, there are so many different types of culture that oppresses women in particular and women of color, you know, it's just even compounded. But right now, you know, I've been rebelling against diet culture. I'm doing the intuitive eating thing. <laughs> I do like to sort of identify all these systems that try to make us small. And I think that there's, you know, there's only so much we can do as individuals. Like a lot of this has to be a systemic change, but I do like to fight back where I can. And most of all, I like to try and inspire young women to fight back because hopefully some of them will get into positions where they can affect real systemic change. But yes, I like to be in rebellion. I like to write about rebellions. Um, I like to write about, in particular, rebellions from cults. I had someone pointed out to me recently that while Mirror Girls is a very different book, it's set in the Jim Crow South. In a way, what was Jim Crow but a cult? Like it was a cult mindset. This the whole idea of segregation that these girls have to escape from by rebelling against it and revolting against it. Um, so that is a, a theme that I love to explore in art. And so many YA books are sort of exploring that right now that I, I'm just in heaven reading them. Um, and even documentaries, like I think the one you were alluding to, like the framing Britney, you know, things like, you know, these ideas of rebellion are sort of in the culture at large. You know, I'm, and I'm sure you might've seen this in, in interviews. I was specifically inspired by the um, a real cult, the Fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints, which were kind of like in my neck of the woods when I was growing up in Arizona, and I would see them on TV. Um, and they really took oppression of women to a really dystopian level. And all through my 20s, I read as many memoirs as I could of women who had escaped from those systems. And I always recommend people, and it might even be good if sort of Agnes isn't for you right now because of the pandemic, um, a book by Carolyn Jessup called Escape. Um, and it's the true life escape of a woman from this very oppressive cult. And she is historically notable because she was the first woman to escape with all of her children. And uh, one of her children was disabled as well. It was, it took her many years to, to break free of this cult and then many more years to process the grief and trauma of having been in that situation. Um, mm -hmm. But this is a cult where women were really truly, they were worth one sixth of a man, exactly. Um, you know, men had many, many wives. They were supposed to have six. Um, and it, it's not to be con uh, confused with the Mormon religion either. This is a cult that has been sort of disavowed by them. I have read some news recently that the town, that one of the towns in Arizona that was populated by this cult elected its first female mayor. So there's like some signs that things will be changing, but mm. the cult does still exist to some extent. Wow. I'm just thinking about the reality of a town somewhere in the United States just electing its first female mayor. Right. Yes. No, I know. <laughs> um, yes, that's true. You say that Agnes was running ultimately from the patriarchy and that you feel like you've been running from the patriarchy all of your life. I think we all sort of experience the ways the world wants to make us smaller. Uh, young women in particular, it can be really tough, I think, through, through your 20s and even beyond when you're not taken seriously because you're a girl or a woman. I had some of my first intense experiences with that in college. Um, and then when I was living in New York, I felt very much that there was a limited amount that was expected of me or that I was supposed to be sort of pigeonholed a little bit smaller. And I think that it prevented me from taking some risks that I otherwise might have taken. And even just the constant oppression of you have to be a certain size or you have to look a certain way um, or you have to be sort of pleasing in a very specific way. And then, of course, the culture that we're all inundated with where movie stars always do look that certain way. And yeah, the patriarchy is a many tentacled beast. <laughs> and it's something that I think a lot about sort of especially raising my daughter is just kind of like how how can I protect her from that? And there's sort of a limited amount that you can do. 
Um, but I do think that the stories that we're seeing in, in young adult literature and children's literature celebrating female experiences more and a varied, like a variety of female experiences is, is really a powerful force for change. When I was a kid, you know, the book that really blew my mind, because I mostly read stories about young white boys being heroes, but a book that really blew my, my mind was Robin McKinley's The Hero and the Crown because that was a story about like a woman dragon slayer. And then, you know, in the 2000s, we finally got the Hunger Games, which was about a female revolutionary. And of course she was, you know, tough and sort of very much like a badass type character. And I think now we're starting to get sort of different versions where, where our heroines are allowed to be a little bit softer. They don't have to be amazing with a bow and arrow. They don't have to be fighters. They can be gifted in other ways. So I am hopeful that things will change. But as your daughter grows, uh, how are you going to, to show her those heroines? Well, I'm going to try and give her as many books as I can, but I'm going to try and do it in a low key way where like, you know, I'll just leave the stack of books. Cause I've noticed she's only four now, but if I tell her to do something directly, she will do the opposite thing, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably a good sign for, you know, going to school. And, um, but there are experiences that I remember, like, I remember the first time in eighth grade, and this was pre, pre doormat. I was in Spanish class and I loved Spanish and I would always raise my hands and have the answer to the question. I did a lot of like extracurricular Spanish study on my own. Um, and a little girl took me aside after an, another eighth grade girl. And she said, you know, you know, people don't like you if you just have all the answers. So maybe just keep them to yourself. And I did is the thing I shut up like, for years, and um, even in college, I, when I when I had the answer, when I knew, you know, I was in writing classes, I was in literature classes, and um, I I kept my hand down. So um, the one sort of sacred space where I where I, I did feel free to speak up was at this Walnut Hill School for the Arts. Um, that was a sort of a magical place for me. But um, throughout my first high school years in Arizona, I I really kept quiet um, in math class. I didn't even try because I girls weren't supposed to be good at math. Um, and actually I, I even had a teacher who said that. So it was like, I was like, well, you know, then why do the homework? Right. Um, and I, but I, I specifically remember that little girl saying that to me and I, and I recognize it now for what it was, is that she had some internalized misogyny, even at that young age that she wanted to sling at someone else. Um, and I'm really ashamed to say that it was so, so effective. And even the title of the book that I wrote, doormat. It's about a girl who lets herself be stepped on, you know, who lets herself be walked over. And that girl is always going to be living inside me, you know, but I, I hope that by the time my daughter goes through school, we'll all be more aware enough that maybe those things will happen less frequently. Mm -hmm. I can't speak to it yet. Cause I sort of don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have already noticed differences at the playground. Like the girls will be in dresses and flip-flops, things where they can't climb as easily as the boys. Um, little girls, people are more likely to say, be careful, you know? And even me, I'm more likely to say, be careful to, to my little girl than I would to like my, my, the little boy that I'm watching. I watch my friend's kids sometimes too. Um, and so, yeah, it's gonna be hard to shake. You know, even in Agnes, you know, it's not just the men who are doing the work of oppression. Women have to buy into it. Um, and so she has the Sunday school teacher, Mrs. King, who breaks her knuckle for daring to say that she hears the voice of God and that the society sort of wouldn't function without that. And not, that's not to say, you know, anything uh, bad about women. It's just the way oppression works is by getting deep inside people's souls so that it can continue to recreate itself. Mm -hmm. And even where I'm at in the book, Beth has resigned herself to marriage as a 15 year old to a man who's as old as her father. Yeah. Beth and Agnes, they have um, very different paths sort of towards, you know, liberation. And it's, um, that was fascinating to write about as well. Mm. Just this, I had, cause I have, you know, I've met in my life, women all have to deal with this and we all kind of deal with it in different ways. Um, and I think it's fascinating. Mm. Where do you see your work as a writer going next? Do you think you'll still keep writing for young adults? So I, um, besides the young adult project, I also have a picture book coming out, um, hopefully sometime next year, co-written with my mother. And it's going to be called, we don't have a pub date yet, but it's called Soul Step. And it's going to be about like 
step and formation stepping, and I'm really excited for it. So that's my first, sort of first time dipping my toe into that. Um, and then actually, I kind of want to take a break from young adult writing just for a short period to try my hand at middle grade. I have always loved middle grade books, and I think that they're some of like the most powerful books that we encounter in our lives because we encounter them at just such a special age. Uh, like I still remember reading Tuck Everlasting, you know, when I was <laughs> a middle grader or like the Watsons go to Birmingham. So I have a story that I'm sort of kicking, kicking around in my head about, um, you know, a, a black girl who goes off to boarding school. And um, yeah, so I, I, I think I'm still experimenting. I think that I'm still young enough in my career that I'm going to see what happens. But uh, what I say in my bio is true. Young adult literature is special for me. And sort of if you set me loose in a library, in a, well, don't do a bookstore because then I'll just spend way too much money, but <laughs> in a library, you know, it is the young adult books that I'm, you know, snatching up. Mm, so, um, interesting. yeah, I just, I like, I love the idea, the way people reckon with identity. That's the most fascinating thing in the world to me. I love reading nonfiction sort of about those issues too, but young adult literature has been where the magic happens for me for a long time. I think you're lucky also that, you know, like dystopian literature, which has been quite successful in the last few years, young adult literature is sort of on fire too. It is. Yeah. And, and yes, and in many different directions. So I, and, and I'm a genre hopper. So I wrote a contemporary uh, with Dormat and then Agnes is sort of dystopian with a little, you know, magic thrown in. Um, my next one is a historical fiction slash ghost story. And, you know, the one after that, I want to be sort of a contemporary coming of age. So, so I like to try different things. That's the main thing. I like to try new types of stories. Mm. And I think it's been said that science fiction as a genre in particular has been a way for people to grapple with some of the big questions that we have as humans. And so I wonder if we're seeing that in YA, in dystopian literature for, for teens um, uh, and, and as part of that publishing trend in the last few years. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, I think science fiction is also very healthy in sort of adult literature. I think one of the main things that we're seeing that I'm loving is kind of like the black Renaissance. Um, and I personally trace it back to the movie Get Out. I don't know if you ever saw that American movie where, you know, we've had all these horror movies and, and I am sort of a person who enjoys a good scare. Um, we've had all these horror movies and they always featured sort of like white girls usually. And then we had this sort of black take on it that was like so refreshing and so new because those voices had gone unheard for so long. And then I think we see that sort of in every genre of, of literature from like N.K. Jemisin, her sort of Lovecraftian horror that she's doing, you know, taking, taking these old stories and putting a different spin on it. Um, you know, Coulson, Whitehead with the Underground Railroad and, and Nickel Boys sort of doing historical fiction in this whole new way. And then of course, like our amazing black writers in the young adult world, like Bethany Morrow doing A Song Below Water, the, the mermaid siren book, um, Leah Johnson, You Should See Me in a Crown. It just, the list goes on and on. And that's where I have really felt seen this flowering of, of new voices. The piece of black art that influenced Agnes quite a bit actually was Octavia Butler's uh, Parable of the Sower. Uh, that's a wonderful piece of science fiction. And I discovered Octavia Butler. I was a teenager and um, I asked my mother, who's black, you know, why don't black people write science fiction? And she was just like, girl, like they do. Like they're just <laughs> famous. And, you know, so she gave me Octavia Butler, Parable of the Sower, and I read it. And I was like blown away. And it's, and if you, if you ever read it side by side with Agnes, you'll see the similarities. It's about a young girl who sort of anoints herself as someone who can hear this supernatural voice and, um, you know, sets out to become a revolutionary leader um, in a super oppressive society. Have you read Nalo Hopkinson? Nala Hopkinson, I, you know, I read her, but it's been a while. It's, it's due for a revisit. I took a course with Nalo Hopkinson when I did my BFA. Um, so cool. And so in Nalo's course, that's when I sort of was aware of Afrofuturism as a concept, uh, as a genre. That's amazing. Yeah, I will have to do a, a revisit really soon because I'm yeah. always looking for new Black writers. A book that I've been recommending since it's Black History Month is how Long Till Black Future Month by N.K. Jemisin. 
and it's Afrofuturism or, but it, but I mean, it dips into the past. It's, it's science fiction. There's ghost stories. It's a collection of stories and they tend, she tends to take well-worn tropes. She's apparently a big Star Trek fan. Um, you know, these well-worn things we've always seen those kind of twilight zone stories where the default is always to be white mm -hmm. and she puts this sort of black spin on it. And I, I'm just finding it really powerful. Mm. Yeah. This has been such a fantastic talk. Thank you so much for, for having me and thank you for doing this. I um, will definitely listen to the other episodes and I'm so curious to, to like hear what you find. So thank, thank you for including me. Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad to talk with you. So glad you were interested. Well, thank you. It was really a pleasure to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Have a great day. Stay safe. You too. Bye. Bye. find a list of all of the books and authors we mentioned in our chat in the notes for this episode. In 2004, Publishers Weekly described Kelly as a writer to watch, and of course Teen People magazine called her a teen who will change the world. So please buy her books and check out her website, kellymcwilliamsauthor.com. And you can hear my conversation with Kelly's former instructor at the new school, Karen Levis, in episode one of this podcast. Karen told me about intern life, daydreaming in lockdown, and her latest kid's book, This Way Charlie. Having heard this podcast, you might be surprised to know that my other hobby is plants, gardens, and environmental history. Over the past few years, I have pieced together the long-forgotten story of Kate Crooks, a 19th-century Canadian botanist who captured a record of Southern Ontario's plant life before industrialization and urban sprawl changed our landscape forever. I spoke about Kate Crooks on Sarah Wilson's award-winning garden podcast, Roots and All. Sarah reached me on a transatlantic phone call, so I sound as if I'm at the bottom of a well, but you can find Sarah's interview with me in episode 91 of Roots and All, and I've linked to it in the notes for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app. That helps me move up the charts so I can share these stories widely. And please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at teenpeoplepod. I'm Anna Soper. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>